I'm Reverend Harry Bridge. And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Realm Podcast. And we're coming to you from the Kodo of the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Realm Podcast for February 5th, 2010, and today we talk about the Bodhisattva vow. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. We're back for our first podcast of 2010, and uh, we kind of sent a call out on our Facebook page, uh, knowing that we were heading back into the studio to record, and so we got some interesting conversation going, and uh, it gave us a kind of a place to start. We may not directly address the uh, question as asked on the website, although we might get there. Uh, but uh, it gave us kind of a, a germ or a seed for, for something to talk about. So uh, today we thought we would talk about the idea of the vows or vow. Uh, because it's a very important Jodo Shinshu idea, the primal vow or the 48 vows of Amida Buddha. Uh, but also more generally in Mahayana Buddhism with the Bodhisattva vow. I think it's important to, at the beginning, uh, just kind of mention that uh, there isn't only really one way to talk about the bodhisattva vow, uh, or there isn't only one bodhisattva vow, that uh, there's probably several different approaches that we could take. Um, one that we often think about is bodhisattvas like maybe Avalokiteshvara, Kanon, Guanyin, right? That um, this kind of cosmic bodhisattva uh, has t- made a vow uh, not to attain enlightenment until all beings are saved. Right. And I think that that's often kind of held up as the quintessential bodhisattva vow. Sure. Which seems to me like a present tense version right. of a vow. These are things that I'm doing or going to do in my practice of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And then we could also, though, look at more on the level of the everyday person, the practitioner, practitioner, uh, and I think that there are traditions where the the taking of these bodhisattva vows is very important. So that's also very much present, future tense kind of thing. Yeah, maybe that's what I was thinking of. Okay, I jumped to the end. Sorry. <laughs> well, no, it's okay because I think that in the sense that um, as far as like Avalokiteshvara or that kind of bodhisattva. Um, well, those are like uh, those would be seen as like ideals or uh, the taking of a bodhisattva vow for an ordinary person in your ordinary life might look to those as examples, right? Mm-hmm. You could look to Avalokiteshvara as an example or an exemplar of vows that you could make, right? Right. And that vow will only be fulfilled when all beings attain Buddhahood, which I I think I feel like there's an implication here that. That's into the endless future. Yeah, that seems like an irrational goal. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, th- there's a, there's some backstory and context to that statement. Okay. <laughs> backstory and context in an earlier conversation that Harry and I had off camera, so to speak, oh, okay. um, about <clears throat> just how to me it seems as though uh, nothing against the Bodhisattva path, the Bodhisattva vows. I think they're very important. Um, when you make those vows, it's very a very noble thing to do. And I totally support that at the same time to make the claim that you're going to put off 
becoming enlightened until all sentient beings are enlightened seems like an irrational goal because a, how do you measure that? And B, when does it actually happen? Mm. Right. And it necessarily implies a certain cosmic view on reality and reincarnation and so on and so forth. And so there's lots, it's a, it's a heavy, very loaded statement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, a new year's resolution where this year I've had to lose 10 pounds, mm -hmm. which is a, you know, measurable, limited, you know, attainable, maybe goal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe that immeasurable, immeasurability is kind of part of it in a way though. Yeah. Right. This is something that transcends um, normal everyday scientific reality, material reality, right? And that this is kind of going beyond that. Um, and so it's interesting because here we have this cosmic bodhisattva making these vows. So this isn't even really a person, yeah. right? This is like almost like a cosmic principle in a way, although they're often perceived as people or portrayed as people. Um, but then it's also something that a regular person may, can do. Yeah as part of their practice. And, and I think many people do right. do these, these make these vows or mm -hmm. similar vows anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and then, however, there's, that isn't the only bodhisattva vow, um, or it's not the only vow that one could take. And I think that um, often uh, the Buddhas with pure lands like Akshobhya or Amitabha, um, they often have more than one, right? They have a whole bunch of vows. So I guess Samantabhadra is one of the other bodhisattvas that has like ten, the ten vows of Samantabhadra, which is more the kind of thing of, uh, I vow not to attain Buddhahood until all beings are saved, right? which is the endless future. But there are bodhisattvas that take vows that actually get fulfilled, supposedly, get come true, like they're, they're actually done, finished. Right? And so um, Amida Buddha or Amitabha is like one of the, the exemplars of that, I think. And so when he was a bodhisattva, Dharmakara bodhisattva, he made 48 vows in the most commonly used text. And um, some of those vows relate to what his pure land will be like. Some of those vows relate to what his Buddhahood will be like. Uh, some of those vows relate to uh, what beings who are born in his pure land will be like. So it's kind of a different style of vow maybe than the than the one of saving um, not attaining buddhahood until all beings are saved because dharmakara does become buddha dharmakara does become amida he yeah, hasn't well, put off his buddhahood right i think the, to me this seems like the difference between dharmakara's vows and these other vows we're talking about is again an issue of verbal tense right i mean if your Samantabhadra's vows are to wait to attain Buddhahood until all sentient beings are enlightened, that's a future tense, whereas when we talk about Dharmakara, we're talking in the past tense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, the texts make it very clear that these vows were made and fulfilled in the infinitely long past. These were already fulfilled. They're not things that are going to happen right, right. or that Dharmakara is working on. He did these in the past tense. Mm -hmm. But I think that the goal of those vows is still at least in the same same ballpark, right? I mean, the, the reason why Dharmakara makes these vows is to save all sentient beings. Right, 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 right. So it's the same sort of end result as Samantabhadra. The only difference is, is that Dharmakara has already fulfilled his vows. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm nitpicking. <laughs> right, 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 right. But I mean, I think it's important to make this point because some books will tell you that I will not attain Buddhahood until all beings are saved is the Bodhisattva vow. Right. But to me, that is not the case. 
that that's one type of vow that, mm, that, see, that bodhisattvas can take. Not all bodhisattvas take vows like that. Although that's kind of the one that just in general Mahayana, if there is such a thing, to me, um, gets held up as the main one. But this, this idea of, of um, the vows of Dharmakara, the, Amida's vows, um, is another style where the vows are doing something. Yeah, their, their ultimate goal is the same, to save all beings, but I guess their technique of saving is different. Right. And in this yeah, case, yeah. the um, for the most part, the um, Amida's vows are, like you say, considered to have been fulfilled. And there are these fulfillment passages in the in the um, larger sutra, for example, that say, you know, yes, he did them. He became <laughs> Buddha. Right? By becoming Buddha, he fulfilled his vows to become Buddha. And so now those mechanisms are kind of in place. Right. Yeah. So a lot of times we hear about other power. Right in in Jodo Shinshu, but sometimes other power is um, called Buddha power. Right, other power is Tariki, Ta being other, Riki being power. But sometimes it's Butsu Riki, hmm. and sometimes it's Ganniki or vow power. Ooh, yeah, the power of the vow. Um, so uh, we can see there that um, the vows are really really important um, in Jodo Shinshu. One of the interesting things in Shinshu is that. Um, I think in some other kinds of Buddhism, and I, some kinds of Tibetan Buddhism for sure, um, part of the person's practice is to take bodhisattva vows. Yeah. Um, and probably in conjunction with that is the idea of bodhicitta or the um, mind aspiring for awakening, mind aspiring for enlightenment. Um, because that's a big part of this. It is Mahayana Buddhism. It's Bodhisattva Buddha path, right? So the goal is not only for yourself. You're not only vowing. This, I mean, this is kind of belaboring the same point, but I think it's important that it's not only about me attaining Buddhahood. It's about me attaining Buddhahood for the sake of sentient beings, for the sake of all beings. Yeah. Right? So that that Bodhicitta is not only about me attaining awakening. It's about me... Uh, saving other beings or helping other beings also um, awaken to enlightenment or not be suffering anymore. So that's the kind of the, the, the two sides of bodhicitta. Um, and that, I mean, and, and that kind of goes back, I think, to what you were saying about how, well, you know, Samantabhadra, this idea of not attaining Buddhahood until all beings attain awakening is for the sake of other beings, right? In the way, that's putting other beings ahead of yourself, huh? Yeah. Because you're saying, I'm, I would love to attain Buddhahood, but I'm going to be a bodhisattva right. for as long as it takes to save other beings. So maybe that's partly what that vow is pointing towards. Which, which vow? Now, see, I'm confused. Okay. <laughs> the one of, I won't attain Buddhahood until all beings are saved. It's pointing toward? Compassion. Yeah. Towards other beings. That it's not about me. Yeah. That my awakening isn't the important thing here. The awakening of others is important. Um, so in a way, that's one manifestation maybe of compassion of the Buddha. And, uh, that. Yeah, but see, now I'm, I'm going back to what you were saying before about how Dhammakara's vows are already completed, they're already fulfilled, which is which is different mm-hmm. than the future tense, I am working toward getting everybody enlightened. And how Dhammakara already has fulfilled these vows and what that means and how the mechanism really is different. Mm-hmm. You know, if we take that view that Dharmakara's vows have been fulfilled, then presumably there's a way in which all beings could become enlightened, but that hasn't happened yet, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Mm-hmm. It's a very different take on, I don't know. 
Right. That's why I feel like it's all these different. I mean, it kind of points to the eighty-four thousand Dharma gates kind of thing. That there's yeah. all these different uh, methods or techniques. Yeah. Right. And that the Buddha reality to me, Buddha reality uh, works in a lot of different ways. Um, and it's later on with like sectarianism and everything that maybe some go all one way, some go all the other sure. way. Sure. Um, but but that um, yeah, I mean. Dharmakara looks at all these other pure lands in the larger sutra and kind of picks and chooses and he's like, I'm going to make the best pure land. So that kind of is a recognition that there are all these other Buddhas, all these other pure lands, all these other people have made vows. Um, and so he, he kind of picks and chooses and tries to make the one that he thinks is best. Right. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> well, I think part of it is that... Um, <clears throat> I mean, a, a, maybe a very Jodo Shinshu take or a very um, pure land kind of take is that it's a system set up for people who can't take vows themselves. Right, it's a system right, set right, up right. for people who can't do that hard way. Right? So that some people, maybe they have just um, good karma and deep spiritual yearning and um, deep compassion for others and are able to awaken um, bodhicitta on their own and are able to take vows and say, I'm going to do this no matter what. Yeah. I'm, forget me. I'm doing it for everyone else. But then Dharmakara Bodhisattva realized... That there are a bunch oh, of slackers in the world. Yeah, the slackers of the <laughs> sentient beings. Like me. <laughs> who are not going to be able to do that. Yeah. And yet, in the compassion of the Buddha, even they are embraced. They want to make sure that they have the mechanism by which to attain their own bodhicitta and eventual right. enlightenment. Yeah. Right. Whether we call it the easy path versus the difficult path... Um, in Nagarjuna or uh, the Pure Land Path versus the Path of Sages like Tao Cho. Yeah. Right? I mean, those are different people's kind of interpretations yeah, of, yeah. Of, of what this path Don't is. Let me start on an easy path. Yeah. <laughs> the easy Doesn't path. feel easy to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, maybe easy practice versus difficult practice because that, that gets to, well, then what is this path? What What's the relationship between Amida's right. or Dharmakara's 48 vows and... The practicer, the ignorant. Yeah, and, and yeah, that's kind of what I was tripping out on a minute ago. And this different, different, different takes on Bodhisattva vows versus Dharmakara versus uh, Samantabhadra is that Samantabhadra is doing it himself. That he's making these vows and he's working toward getting everybody enlightened. And so is Dharmakara, but sort of, but in the past tense, because he's already made this mechanism by which people like slackers like me can get to his pure land and eventually become enlightened in a sort of literal causal way of t describing it but then that raises that question well then what 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 do i do what does scott do if mm -hmm. this vow has already been fulfilled am i making the vow or is the vow happening in me or where is the primal vow yeah which that gets us to that question. conversation yeah <laughs> on the facebook page and, and and for the record i don't have any answers <laughs> <laughs> one of the interesting things i realized when i was at ibs was um if you read the larger sutra there's this whole section at the beginning talking about these bodhisattva careers and that there these, have been these bodhisattvas from the beginningless past or people who become bodhisattvas and they, they're born as princes, they um, forsake their kingdom, they go off in this... This sounds um, familiar. Right? It's interesting. It's like I realized, okay, so like I think that the life story of Shakyamuni gets held up as the kind of... the the um, the norm 
Right. All, the ideal, right? But it's interesting because it talks about how all Buddhas did this. Yeah, right? so like there's sort of like this template that, mm-hmm. that right, all right. Buddhas to be will eventually follow, which is... Right. Well, and the interesting thing, though, I think, is that we can see that in the Buddhist tradition as well, that although like Theravada or Mahayana or um, Vajrayana, right, these different schools or diff- different um, styles of Buddhism, they're, they're different, and yet I think that we can see a very strong um, tendency to try and emulate what the Buddha did. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's do the same meditation practices um, and attain, become an arhat and attain the same, um, you know, quiescence and nirvana that he did, or the more Mahayana one, no, you should be even more. Don't just do it and, you know, become a bodhisattva like him, and you can actually become a Buddha like him, mm. right? And so, so this, these uh, different kind of paths of emulation of the Buddha, I think we can see in, in uh, many different uh, schools of Buddhism. But that's where... Pure land is kind of different, I think. For some, some versions of pure land, Jodo Shinshu being one, that we're not supposed to take bodhisattva vows. Yeah. We're not supposed to try and do what the Buddha did because it's beyond our abilities. Uh, and that what we should actually be doing is taking refuge and trusting in the vow power of the Buddha that's coming to me. It almost seems very Theravada. How so? <laughs> Well, in, in, in sort of classical Theravada, you become an arhat. You don't become a Buddha, mm-hmm. right? And, and there's clearly delineated roles. You're either a, you know, a fully ordained monastic or you're a layperson, mm-hmm. right? So it's sort of you're not trying to become the Buddha as, as you are in, in Mahayana formulations. You're you know, sort of like accepting your particular karmic place in life almost. Mm-hmm. Right? Interesting. I'm, I'm making a gross oversimplification and, and completely, completely wrong. <laughs> well, I think, but just what you said right there, just sort of like, like clicked in my head of like, oh, it's it's actually very it's, and I think that part of the reason I'm thinking this is because so often Shin Buddhism and Pure Land Buddhism is so often derided as not as being so very different from other kinds of Buddhism. Well, it's like there's these similarities. Mm-hmm. There are these ways of sort of understanding Pure Land from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like making those connections, and I think. I think the important thing is that it still is coming out of this Mahayana yeah, context. Absolutely, absolutely. And so it's still saying arhats are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Prachika Buddhas are wrong, right? You should be aiming towards Buddhahood. Right, right. Um, and that's an interesting thing is that um, I guess what is the goal of Pure Land Buddhism? And the immediate goal would seem to be birth in the Pure Land. Right. Right. But the implication there is that, that so there's a reason why you're born in the Pure Land and to that become is Buddha. to become Buddha. Yeah. Not, um, so, so I would say it kind of by, actually bypasses the arhat, maybe. Yeah. But, but that's an interesting point. Um, like I said, I was totally wrong. It's <laughs> just wanted to put it out there. <laughs> well, there's a lot of shifting back and forth too of, of the different stages um, of, of attainment because it's, it's more than just birth in the pure land, right? It's attaining shinjin for um, jodo shinshu or attaining the stage of non-retrogression so that you won't fall back. Um, isn't isn't a technical thing in there that. Um, yeah, I know, but aren't there some, correct me if I'm wrong, um, isn't one way of understanding Shinjin that Shinjin means that your eventual birth in the Pure Land is guaranteed, so to speak? Right, so that, that's the point. And then isn't mm-hmm. it also understood that if you, ha- if you are going to have birth in the Pure Land, that necessarily means you've reached the Sage of Non-Retrogression? 
Well, see, some of the vows are worded differently. Ah. So one of the vows um, just, says, just make up a number. <laughs> Those born in the Pure Land immediately attain the stage of non-retrogression and will absolutely attain Buddhahood. Right. So that stage of retrogression is attained in, at birth in the Pure Land. But there's other passages where when you hear the name, mm-hmm. one attages, attains the stage of non-retrogression. So for Shinran, Shinjin, an, as, an important aspect of Shinjin is that one has attained the stage of non-retrogression. Right. And one will necessarily attain Buddhahood. One will attain Buddhahood having attained that. So that's what I mean by the shifting. Like yeah, this. Yeah. Sometimes even the text internally isn't consistent. I just wanted to bring that up. I like, I like that shifting and I like that subtle nuance. Mm-hmm. And, and what I find most interesting in that whole, this whole debate or conversation or shifting between different positions there is that the sort of normative bodhisattva causal progression, right, of, of you know, first you get bodhicitta, then you have these vows, then you get various stages progressively up to the stage of non-retrogression and then eventually so on and so forth. All of that's still in there for Shinran. It's just been compacted and or mm-hmm, presented mm-hmm. in a different way. And depending on how you look and where you look, either all of that happens at the moment of Shinjin or all of it happens at the moment of birth. Right, right, right. But right. it's still all there. This right, sort of right, like right, right, normative right. bodhisattva path is still all there. It's mm-hmm. just presented in this much different, it's wrapped up in a different package. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, it, a lot of times it's very doctrinal and um, seemingly objective of these spiritual, you know, subjective spiritual states and everything. Yeah. But I think in a way there was um, political aspects to it too, where the common folk, farmers, peasants, whatever in medieval Japan were completely denied any of the benefits of Buddhism, of the Buddhist path. Right. Um, and then Pure Land's one of the schools that comes along and says, no, you folks are just as embraced by Amida Buddha as like some noble or some warrior or whatever. Um, and very empowering, actually. Yeah. So when Shinran uses terms like um, equal to Maitreya, you know, That's that the huge. person of Shinjin is equal to Maitreya. It's like saying that this peasant, you're the same as or equal to this bodhisattva. Yeah. Right. And not just any bodhisattva, but the bodhisattva who's waiting around at Tushita Heaven to come back as the next historical Buddha. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a pretty, you know, if you put that into the context of what 13th century Japan and the political climate and farmers versus, you know, royalty, that's a pretty revolutionary statement mm-hmm. if you think about it. And it's related to that necessary attainment of nirvana and this shifting of stages, because normally, traditionally, one attains birth in the Pure Land and then practices in the pure land for a long time yeah. and then becomes Buddha. But Shinran's formulation, that stuff gets shifted back. So one attains stage of non-retrogression in this life, and then in your next life, you will necessarily attain nirvana. So in that sense as well, you're like Maitreya. Right. That when in your next life, you are going to be Buddha, the, the life after this one. So um, this language comes up in the Gobuncho and Renyo's letters, um, um, Gosho no Ichidaiji no Koto, or whatever, Ichidaiji, Right, the most important matter of the next life. That rather than be reincarnated, get get it worked out now. Get Shinjin now, so that when you die, you'll be born in the Pure Land and attain Buddhahood. So, so this language is 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 in there all the time in the in the writings and um, you know even maybe some of the sutra stuff that we chant and then the Gobun show. But a lot of times we don't talk get the chance to really talk about it like a temple or whatever yeah. in a Dharma talk or something. Well, why not, dude? Um, yeah, just 
you're a minister. Talk about it. Okay. Next week. <laughs> um, so maybe getting back to that, it's interesting, getting back to that question of where is the vow? Yeah, which was the conversation that sparked, sparked all thing. of this on the Facebook right. page, yeah. In a way, the vow isn't here anymore anyway. Like you said, it's past tense. The vow has already been fulfilled. But then yeah, that yeah, idea yeah. of the vow power, that the karmic mechanism of that vow has been established already, so the vow is already, in a way, done. Ooh, that's but, a nice way of looking at it, the karmic mechanism. Mm-hmm. That's and a nice the, way of looking at it. That still resonates and still resounds and still has effects on the universe. That, that, that mechanism that he set up, it's like a spring that's all been wound up, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. the spring has been completed and the machine has been completed so that now, um, by entrusting in the Buddha, whether it's you know saying the name ten times, the issue of reciting the name is what gets you there, or entrusting in Buddha, entrusting in this uh, merit and virtue that's being uh, transferred to us from Amida Buddha through that vow mechanism, we are able to... Uh, attain Shinjin, attain birth in the Pure Land, attain Buddhahood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in that sense, I guess maybe in a way, where is the vow? It's kind of like it's back there. Yeah, the vow's in whatever world John Makar was living in mm-hmm. before he established the Pure Land, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of past tense yeah, in a way. Yeah, but the power, that, and I think I like that formulation of the karmic, uh, would you say the karmic mechanism? Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's from a sort of strict interpretation of karma that's how karma works right is mm-hmm. that we have we we make we make karma right we have we do actions and those actions have karmic consequences and it's sort of a testament to the power of the vow itself that the vow is so powerful that it's karmic retrib- uh, reactions or whatever you want to call them pervade throughout the universe throughout endless time mm-hmm. because and, that's what was vowed in the first place yeah mm-hmm. it's kind of mind-blowing <laughs> <laughs> Cosmic, dude. <laughs> so, so then the power then is what remains mm-hmm. to answer that question. Yeah, in a way. Maybe. Huh. I mean, if I, we even want to answer any of the questions that were in that conversation. One possible answer. <laughs> because, I, and I think actually it's kind of interesting because one of the issues I think in the Buddhist tradition that doesn't get talked about much maybe is, well, it does, but not, maybe not in this way, the relationship between samsara and nirvana. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, there's a Mahayana formulation, oh, actually, samsara is nirvana, right? Ta-da. But Evidence that doesn't come out of a vacuum. Yeah. Right? I think that um, that's actually a really, really important issue for the, the early Buddhist tradition. Maybe, yeah, I think how, it was a huge tra- issue right? for the early Buddhist tradition. Yeah. How does this work? How could it, yeah. how is it possible that you could go from this karmic samsaric cesspool, yeah, <laughs> to the purity cessation of nirvana? Yeah. And we know it's possible because the Buddha did it. But how is it possible? What's the mechanism? Mm-hmm. How does that get worked out? And, and I, I think, think the Mahayana response was that well, samsara and nirvana are the same thing. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form, which seems like a nice thing to say but what does that really mean and and there's a whole vast literature on that going back 2000 years and that's well i think that's one response yeah but then another response i think is this kind of pure land vow mechanism mm-hmm. that 
there's another way that it's it's not something that we're doing. It's it's the nirvana reaching out to us, hmm. right? And that there's that 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 karmic mechanisms have been put into place, maybe or or you know that. Um, and that's interesting too, because in a way, the the narrative of the Pure Land and of Dharmakara and Amida Buddha is put into this temporal framework. Six coated, no, six kalpas ago. He attained Buddhahood, yeah. right? Which would seem to be in our regular um, space-time continuum, right? Except for the fact that the kalpa is inconceivably long, right? But it's still measurable. <laughs> but to it's a still measurable within the context right, of right, the right. the surface narrative of the sutra. But um, Shinran, uh, borrowing from Tan Luan, actually kind of goes beyond that, I think, and and recognizes that this isn't necessarily all historical, quote-unquote, that there is some kind of meta-historical um, aspect to it, and that's Amida as um, Dharma body of yeah. suchness, that Amida actually has been Buddha for eternity. He's eternal Dharmakaya, but then manifested form to get this in motion, right? right? So that the vow is still... Um, so in a sense, it's still temporal. Well... Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, it's like the timeless time, yeah. placeless it's, it's, place, then three body, three Buddha bodies theory is coming up. I mean, yeah, that that's that's you know, I joke about um, this not being the easy path because it's sort of easy to say all you have to do is you know receive the compassion of the Buddhas or say the name ten times and you know, presto, you're born in you know the Pure Land. Ah, but it's also when you peel back these layers, you uncover you know, two and a half thousand years of Buddhist philosophy, mm-hmm. you know, about philosophy of mind, about ontology, about metaphysics, about karma, about all of this stuff. It's it's deep, never-ending. We could do the show for the rest of our lives and never <laughs> really discuss everything there is to say about Shin Buddhism, let alone Buddhism. As long as we get paid, I'll do it. <laughs> Sell out. <laughs> the last thing I want to say is I think the other way we could maybe say where is the vow? Another answer would be Namo Amida Butsu. It's in the name. It's in the and the name not as Nembutsu that I say, but this kind of more cosmic notion of the name, that the name is resounding throughout the universe. That the name is the bridge between Samsara and Nirvana for Jodo Shinshu. And that that's the the um the Buddha giving that to us so that we can get there in this otherwise um, uncrossable divide. Thank you.